You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew Podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew first ever book review. I'm Christina Lomangino, and if you're a longtime clatcher, you may notice I'm missing my co-host today, Jason Pistorino. That's because we're here to talk about Stephen King's epic novel, The Stand. That's right, we're doing it. And Jason hasn't read the book yet, but don't worry, he'll be back soon. In the meantime, I will be joined shortly by an amazing panel of guests to help me break down this story. Because it's a lengthy tale, over a thousand pages, we are going to break this up into three podcasts. One to cover each section of the book. One, Captain Trips. Two, On the Border. And three, The Stand. If you've never read the book before, don't worry. You don't need to be following along. This can be a fun way for you to learn about the plot points you never knew, flesh out the characters a little bit, or just have fun joining in on the conversation. But it's important to know that in each cast, while we will be roughly covering one section at a time, we'll pull in information from later on in the novel, talk about the 94 TV adaptation, and the most recent 2020 CBS All Access version. This will help us to discuss overarching themes and character development. So we want to make sure that you're either familiar with the story or okay about hearing points from later on. But it's going to be a great time, and today we're going to be talking about book one, Captain Trips. The novel's first part, Captain Trips, takes place over 19 days, June 16th to July 4th, with the escape and spread of a human-made biological weapon, a superflu virus known formally as Project Blue, but more commonly as Captain Trips. The epidemic leads directly to the death of an estimated 99.4% of the world's human population. King outlines the total breakdown and destruction of our society through widespread violence, protests, paranoia, trying to contain the outbreak, and we're introduced to the few survivors that try to make their way. With that, I'm happy to introduce our three guests who will be joining me for our discussion today. We have two longtime CKC Patreon members. Welcome to Kirk. Hi. Hi, Kirk and Brian. Hello. Welcome. And Michelle, welcome back. Hey. It's been mm-hmm. a long time. I know. Thanks for having me. So guys, we're going to talk about all things related to book one. But before we jump into that, why don't you tell me how you first got into King? What's your history with The Stand? How do you know this universe, basically? All right. So I'll get started because I'm kind of the novice when it comes to King. I really did have a whole lot of interest in him, basically because I thought it was horror and so I relate horror to like the Freddy Krueger stuff. It wasn't until I saw The Shining that I realized, oh, wait, this isn't Freddy Krueger. This is almost more, I don't know, it's like thriller, mystery, you know, fantasy. And I guess maybe that's what they call horror. And I just mischaracterized the genre on my whole, um, you know, thinking about it. So I really didn't have a lot of interest in um, horror or King. And it was basically you, Christina, because you're like, that's my favorite book. This is my favorite book. And it's like, if I hear that one more time, I'm going to have to go out and read this book. So I went out and grabbed the book and um, poured through it in time to get through, you know, read through it before the um, TV show, the CBS TV show that you guys covered. So you were really the motivation for me to even watch The Shining for your CKC podcast and then to read the book. So there, it's all your fault. And now I think he's great. So I'm going to go back and try to catch up with Brian because I think Brian's read probably every word ever written. Is that is that true, Brian? Uh, that's close. Yes. <laughs> Brian, where, uh, so, does, where does the stand rank for you and Stephen King? Stand ranks pretty high for me. 
Um, I've been a fan of King for almost 30 plus years now. Got into it in high school, which means I've just dated myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) In high school is one of those that just likes to read and starting to get into trying to figure out what type of genre I like. So I used to read everything from detective series to vampire stuff, you know, when vampires were actually vampires before Twilight. So I started reading some King. I think Thinner was my first King book. Yeah, it's a pretty deep cut. <laughs> Most people don't know it. But then I just started getting into more and more different types of Kings, either some of his anthologies or some of the larger books. I think it was in college when I first picked up or right after college when I first picked up The Stand. Honestly, I was kind of intimidated when I first started it because it is so large. But I started going back and reading his older stuff in college and realized how good of a book The, the Stand was at that point. So I started reading his other ones like um, Salem's Lots and Pet Cemetery and you know that stuff. So yeah, I've been a fan for a while. I might rival you with history, Christina, for how much that uh, we we like Stephen King. Um, but yeah, Stephen King. I haven't ranked my books yet for top five, but I know the stand is definitely in the top five for me. Well, of your King books or books of all time? Of Stephen King books, uh, Stephen books King. of all time. I'd have to introduce some Robert Ludlum with Jason Bourne stuff and some of the other things like that, it'd be a harder top five list. So Michelle, what is your history with Stephen King? Like you, Kurt, Christina got me into King originally. So Christina's five years older than me. And I always wanted to be, (laughs) yeah, I know. Reading what she was reading, watching what she was watching. And we've always had kind of a twisted passion for all things horror, even at a young age. So she would read to me her choice of book. And I remember the first King story that she read to me was uh, The Langoliers. Yep. Brian's laughing. (laughs) And I loved it. I don't know what it was. But then as I got older and I started to read, as I branched out, I realized that King is so dynamic. And like, What you were saying, Kirk, it's not your typical horror. Years ago, it was slashers, and there was not a depth to the story. With Stephen King, he manages to always have this incredible character development that I don't think was typical for horror stories. And he does, it's not just horror, it's thriller, it's psychological, it's, um, there's so many different components to it that there's just nobody like him. Supernatural in a lot of them, too but not so far-fetched that you feel like you're into the world of fantasy. It always seems to be a little too close to being true or something that could be true. It's just, he's terrifying. Yeah, it seemed like with um, with this book that it sort of, for the most part, it just seemed like it was, you know, well, a true, if you call it true, but apocalyptic story of, you know, just regular folks. And just every once in a while, it would sort of drift off into supernatural or fantasy or something like that have any of you guys this may be a dumb question have any of you guys read dracula bram stoker's dracula you should should try that christina because that's like probably one of the originals what is brian it's like 1850 i think something around there yeah i mean it's, it's kind of along these lines only it's probably even more along the sort of horror genre i guess but one thing that's really similar if you think of dracula and you think of his um, manifestations, let's call it that. Well, let's start with uh, um, with Flag's manifestation. He So Flag had a wolf. I'm going to miss some of them, but he had a wolf and a crow and... Rats. Of course he had himself. A what? A rat? 
Well, it's weasels in the books. It's rats in the TV show. And so, um, and also I can't remember, there seemed to be something with the wind too, with the, with flag. Am I, am I misremembering that? That's a TV, I think, original as well. On the TV show. Mm-hmm. But anyway, if you go back to Dracula, so Dracula's manifestations were very similar. A wolf, not a raven, but a bat, not the wind, but like he had, um, I'm going to call it like a fog or a mist, like sort of, he could sort of move through the country as a mist. And so I, I don't know if he was influenced by Stoker, or, but anyway, I thought that was intriguing. That's amazing. And, and yeah, he talks about a lot of his influences, which I enjoy because you can clearly see them in his writing, of course, with the stand, a big one being Tolkien. And this was going to be his Lord of the Rings, his epic yeah. sort of journey across the country. But what makes this different, people have said this before, sort of a celebration of Americana. It all really takes place in the U.S., even though you get the idea this is happening elsewhere. I've talked enough about my own Stephen King background, but I will just say I loved all of that. I loved reading this, feeling like you could sense inspiration from other things I was familiar with, that it was, as Michelle said, very grounded in reality. I've always been a sucker for apocalyptic fiction. This is really my main draw. So I was excited that book one was so engrossed in the superflu, the spread of that. As we go on, it does get into some of the, if you want to call it supernatural elements here, it's a lot more spiritual than in almost all of King's novels. Jason and I have argued about this on our TV show episodes uh, because I know that it's a topic people either enjoy or do not enjoy. I'm sure that's a theme that we're going to talk about. But to start us off, what almost everyone seems to mention that Michelle said is King does something very different with his introduction of characters. He really brings them to life as you're reading. I feel as though they seem familiar to me. By the end of the book, they're like friends. I want to know what's happened to them. I'm sad when the story is over. And he has so many in the stand. It's really a monumental feat how many, even in book one, we meet almost all the main players and we come to know them. I think this is what I was missing, clearly from the CBS adaptation, because they don't quite pop the way that they do on the page. I understand a thousand pages is a better opportunity to do that. But I think that's how we're going to go through our discussion. We'll talk a little bit about plot points, but we're not going to go chapter for chapter because King does skip around a lot. So I think we'll talk about sections as far as our introductions to the characters, what we thought about them and what they went through during this section of the book. But before we even get to that, we open the book with a prologue called The Circle Opens, of course, where we meet the first player of this game. I want to say minor because we don't see a lot of him, although he kicks it all off. I'm talking about Charles Campion, who works at the Army facility in California, where a deadly virus has contaminated the facility, but Campion manages to escape the place before it goes into lockdown. He gets his wife and his child, they get in their car, and they flee eastward. They make it all the way to Arnett, Texas, where he crashes into Hap's gas station. And we start to meet Stu Redman, really our our first major character, as he deals with the crash and now the subsequent... CDC that moves in once they're alerted to the real spread of the virus in our net. They try to quarantine the town. And we find out very quickly what's different about Stu is that he seems to be immune. As everyone else in the town is getting sick, he is not. So they're running multiple tests on him. They can't figure out why Stu is not getting this. What I'll say, and then I'll open it up to you guys, 
Stu seems to be our everyman in almost every version. He's the one that we can relate to, sort of the ordinary person who is confronted with all of these extraordinary situations, I think played brilliantly by Gary Sinise in the 94, also by Marsden in this 2020. So what do you guys think about Stu? I kind of agree with that. I mean, he was kind of the, like you say, the everyman. One thing that surprised me too was that I didn't, another thing with the TV show brought me up to speed on was um, his age, because we introduced to him, he's sitting around the gas station with all these old fogies, you know, I mean, they're, they're complaining about the government, and they're talking about the paper plant that shut down, and here's Stu talking with him, so I just assumed that he was like, you know, 60, 65, or something like that, and then we find out later in the book that he's, I want to say 33, somewhere early 30s. I think they said 33. So that was kind of a surprise. I had gone quite a while thinking he was an older character. Now that I know that he's younger, I think it fits more. And it turns out that the whole cast is young. From what I've found out, I think Nadine, well, except for like Starkey and all those guys, Nadine, I think, is like one of the oldest. And it says in the book that she's 37. And everybody else is like in their 20s. And what's his name? Harold. See, Harold's the guy that I identified with most. So that's just a joke, Brian. <laughs> um, but he was like, what, 16 or something? So he was like a baby. Yeah, I think he's he's late high school. Franny is early college age. Um, we got a lot of younger characters. I think Stu feels like an old soul. When we get background on him later, he right. sort of never managed to escape. Small town life almost did. And then his mother passed away. He had to care for his younger brother. He's been working in a factory and sort of, yeah, stuck in that small town every night at Haps Gas Station with the couple of people that he identifies with. And I think that introduces us. We come become pretty familiar with Arnett, even in just a few pages, what life is like there. The character of Stu is kind of one that Stephen King brings into a lot of his books. I'm thinking of like Desperation or The Regulators or The Mist, uh, Shawshank Redemption and, and The Green Mile. They all have some character that is just your everyman character that everyone can identify with, no matter if they're reading it when they're 16, 17, 18, or when they're reading and they're in their 50s, 60s, they can relate in some way, shape, or form with the character. I think for me personally, it's like, oh, that's that's a good character. That's a guy that I would like to be when I grew up, essentially, when I read because I was younger than him when I uh, first read the book. Um, and now, as I get looking back, it's like, oh, yeah, I probably would act very similarly because I'm now closer in age to him. So I think that's something that King does really well in developing characters and understanding how to relate to a mass populace who are going to read his books, but also develop other characters to help kind of drive the story forward as needed. Yeah, he is. He's the one I think you can root for. I was talking to Michelle about this, that both Stu and Franny, but even more so Stu, undoubtedly have less of an arc because they don't change a whole lot throughout the book. They start out just pretty good people. They wind up pretty good people. They're challenged maybe a little bit. I think in the beginning, which is a little bit weird, is maybe where you see the most come out of Stu because he is faced with being quarantined up against the CDC, the doctors there. He takes uh, a little bit of a stand against them to try to get himself out and free. But I think you do need maybe a more stable character such as him to follow throughout the novel. It helps you to feel grounded with where you are. Yeah, I would agree. Most of us who read the book didn't live through a pandemic the first time we read the book. <laughs> um, so it was kind of like, ooh, we need somebody that's, the, like you said, the grounding voice, the one person that's stable, that you know just deals with it but doesn't really like have 
some drastic change in character from page one to to the end. So yeah, I totally agree. Having having somebody grounded makes you kind of like sucks you into the story more, and it makes it so that you're in the pages with them. And like you were saying earlier, how they're they're friends essentially by the time you're done reading the four, eight, twelve hundred pages that are there, and and really kind of like. Hey, I, I care about these characters. What's what's book two? <laughs> you know, what's the stand part two look like versus just ending it when the final page says at the end. Mm. As we mentioned, Stu is also our look into what's going on behind the scenes. And we don't get a lot of this, but in most of the adaptations, we do see at least the initial stages of them quarantining Arnett, Texas. It's sort of the beginning. This is very scary. People aren't allowed to leave. They're being rounded up. Stu is first taken to the Atlanta CDC Center and then moved to Stovington, Vermont, which is where we see more of what's going on. Them testing him, not giving him information. But you do eventually get him meeting Denninger and eventually Dietz, the doctors there. You get your look at Starkey, who... He actually gets to meet in the 2020 adaptation, not here in the novel. So that was kind of cool. J.K. Simmons, amazing. It's later on, you do get some chapters. And I love that King does this. We'll talk more about them where he zooms out and you get sort of that 50-foot view, um, the small clips of how the virus is spreading, other people dying off in other areas, the media being shut down as they're trying to report it. But it's very sparing. For the most part, you are really within the character's point of view. I think that's why you become so attached to them. But you feel as they would, that you're on the ground. You don't really know what's going on or how this is all occurring. But in the beginning with this CDC stuff, you do get a little bit of that. You hear about Project Blue and the virus and how it's escaped, what's going on there. So I think that's, that's good for a viewer because you get some exposition, if you will. So as far as the outbreak, what do you guys prefer book 94 2020 the spread of this uh how do you like it being seen well i think that uh um, what was interesting to me is that the outbreak this all of the pandemic stuff was just really sort of the first few chapters i mean it seems like you know after the first few chapters they were kind of done and they were moving on to you know forming these societies and onto the rest of the book so and I think it was probably handled the same way in the TV series, the latest one. I'm not sure exactly, but it seemed like it was maybe just the first episode or so that, and then the, the pandemic itself is all done with and they're moving on to the other stories. And I, I thought that was good because it just seemed like, you know, how many eyes popping out and necks swelling up and do we need to hear? Okay, we get it. People are dying. There's a bad thing. So let's kind of, let's get on with the story. And he did that, you know, so I, I you know, two, uh, two cheers for him for uh, handling it that way, I think. Kirk, I need a lot of that. I love the 2020 where we're getting more <laughs> swollen necks and looks into the hospital of dying people. Yeah, that's the part that that's the sort of the, what's his name? Kruger stuff that what did you call them? Um, Michelle, you called them uh, slashers, right? Uh, so I, I didn't even know that term, but that makes perfect sense. You know, the sort of the slasher stuff. That I could do without, but I like the intrigue and the, I mean, his character development was just fabulous. You know, we spent a little bit on that, but I like how we introduced them. They each sort of got their own little chapter, you know, like we were introduced to say, Franny, you know, as she's walking down to the beach to meet her boyfriend. And, and he doesn't just say, here's Franny. She's riding her bike down to the, you know, it's like, he sort of talks about the environment first and then you're gradually introduced to these people. And I thought it was just great. I thought it was good the way he did it. And, 
I, and I'm always comparing it to like, how would I write that stuff? And I'm like, man, this stuff, I couldn't hold a candle to the stuff that he, he does. It's just amazing to me. You opened me up to the idea too, that he really brings to life each area. So you do get the idea of small town, East Texas life in our net. Yeah. And then you get the feel of a gunkwit Maine and what it's like to be on this, this coastal town. The thinking is a little backwards in some areas. We'll get to that in a minute with Franny. Then New York City with Larry and what it would be like to be amongst an outbreak with so many people just crammed into this small area. And as someone living in New York, it really makes you think a couple of times, what if something did happen? What it would be like to be here? Uh, the Lincoln Tunnel scene, I can't wait to discuss that since <laughs> we were robbed of it here in the 2020. And we are also going to talk a little bit more about the superflu itself later on. Uh, but let's move on to our next two characters because they are really big ones. I'm talking about Franny and Harold. Uh, we meet them in a gunkwit. We do learn about Franny, her boyfriend Jess, the fact that she is pregnant, her plans for the future. And we get some really good interactions that unfortunately neither adaptation totally gave us later, uh, the 94 or the 2020, first with her father and then with her mother. And I thought that these scenes were so well described in the books. Kirk, you touched on that, but when she's talking about her mother's parlor and the grandfather clock ticking off seasons in a dry age, the interactions that are so hard to describe, what her mother was like, what the parlor was like, what it was like with her father and how different that was, and her mother really just exploding when she finds out about the pregnancy. And also, to me, revealing a lot about Franny's character that when people talk later, they feel they're missing something for Franny. In reading this, a lot of it came from that for me, understanding where she's from, why she is so strong, the goodness she takes with her. Uh, they did it really quick. Stephen King did it really quick for me here, and I really enjoyed that. But what did you guys think about Franny? I think that that's another thing about King's writing. People, humans are such a product of their environment. Our character traits, our personalities, our responses to any situation, but especially one like this, so much influenced by our parents, the town that we come from, everything about the environment. We're not just people in a vacuum. So the way that he understands that and uses that to introduce us to these characters and why they are the way they are just goes so far in coloring them and shaping them for us so that we get this big picture of how they came to be, where they're at now, and what determines kind of um, how they grow and change either for the better or for, for the worst. So as far as Franny, you are missing so much when you watch instead of read, when you're watching it, she's kind of just this person with, with no background, no depth versus when you read the book and you really, really understand who she is as a, a three-dimensional character. Go ahead and share your hot take about how you hate Molly Ringwald. You're not <laughs> alone. I'm teasing you. You're not alone in the fact that there's some problems. <laughs> oh my goodness. First of all, just from a general like casting point of view, she looks far too old to me to play the character that she's supposed to be mm -hmm. in the beginning. So now I feel like I'm looking at this person that should be mature and she's so young and she's so immature in so many ways that kind of creates confusion for me. 
of course, we talked about how she was pigeonholed. She was painted with this brush from all our classic 80s movies that as soon as I see her, I'm expecting a breakfast club type character. And that's so cheap compared to the the richness we're going to get from King. I was not a fan of her acting. Her portrayal of Franny was disappointing for me. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting about Franny is that the way, and he might have done this in other characters, but Franny, I think, stood out to me. The way we met her is through the environments that we see her in initially. So we first meet her at the beach, and she's like, you know, talking about the beach and the weather and the cloud cover, and she points out where she where she got pregnant and, you know, the sand where she got pregnant. And then we meet her and learn her relationship with her father through the little shop, you know, up in the attic, I guess it is his shop. And she crawls through the door that's too small to get into. And, you know, then they, and Stephen King that describes all the things that are just, just memories for her and all that. And then, they, and then he goes on to describe, we sort of see her in another environment in the parlor. And so we kind of get all these aspects of her and her life, you know, how she got pregnant, what a relationship with her father is, what a relationship with her mother is through the rooms, I guess, or the environments that, that we meet her in. And I thought that was pretty clever the way he handled that. Even even the garden, that's a really good point that I never thought of. And, you know, because we are going to spoil future stuff, I want to remind everybody we said this at the top, but we are going to call in things from later on. And this is going to be called from the ending. So make sure you're aware of that. But before I forget it, once we get to the very end and we've just seen the finale of the 2020, there's a lot of controversy about the fact that Stu and Franny leave to go back to Maine. Why would they do that? And you're bringing up something for me about why this area is important to her, why she would be homesick for Maine, that I don't think the other depictions really do a good job of showing how much of her self is tied into that area. That, that's a really good point. Yeah, well, that's sort of the way we're introduced to her, you know. So it's usually somebody, either I read it or somebody told me somewhere, and this might be a California thing because we're all pretty transient out here. Many of us are anyway, but the guy said, the way you can tell where home is for you is where you want to be buried. And so I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. And so for her, it's like, that was just home for her. I think, you know, she had these experiences in sort of the free zone and all that. But when it came down to it, you know, she wanted to be buried in New England, you know, and that's kind of where she wanted to get back to. And, you know, credit to Stu for going along with it, you know, because my guess is his home is somewhere else, or maybe he didn't really have one. Brian, I'm going to come to you in a minute, but I, I just want to say, Michelle, I, as he's saying, this can relate as much as Franny describes later. She loves the mountains and Colorado, so beautiful. She couldn't stop thinking about the East Coast beaches, the beaches of Maine. And I thought to myself, never seeing the beaches of New Jersey again. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If I could go forever and say I'd be okay with that uh, growing up where we did. So there, there's something really that touches me there. It's the interesting thought exercise, I'll tell you. You know, if you sort of ask that question of yourself and just see where it feels like you'd want to be buried. I can totally relate to Franny and in some ways Harold as well. I grew up in a small rural town in Wisconsin, even though that now that I'm one of the transient people out here in California that <laughs> not originally from here, there is something true to feeling like Wisconsin is home every time I go back. 
I'm totally used to our 70 degree winters out here and not the six feet of snow in Wisconsin. So I don't think I personally need to get buried back in Wisconsin. Stephen King does a very, very good job of describing this without overly putting it in your head. Like you guys are saying that Franny wants to go home and wants to go someplace that she's familiar and feels like home. And while she's had these great experiences, now that she's going to start a family and set down roots, she wants it to be where she feels like it's home. I think Stephen King did a very good job with that and just really kind of driving home how people from small towns that they've lived at all their lives just want to go back to that small town and call it home and, and have the experience that they had growing up. They have them for their kids and their family as well. Yeah, because like we were talking about before we started, often say that I don't like living in this state anymore. I've been to other places that I liked a lot more. But at the end of the day, like you said, Christina, we were raised on the beach as little kids. And I think our most salient memories come from them. And it's not, it's, it's everything. It's the smell of the salt water. It's the sounds of the waves. Those are the things that you would miss the most. And those memories, when you close your eyes and you can smell those smells again and hear those sounds are just so special. And uh, like, like you said, Brian, when you think about how you were raised and what you want for your kids, that's where we go back to. We go back home. And King, we know, is from New England, and he brings it into so many stories. And that's why he can describe it so perfectly, because he's so emotionally connected to those places and those experiences. These are great points, and I want to move on in a second. But I don't want to forget, because we're not talking about Larry yet, once we get to Larry location is a big thing for him because we start off with him in California and then we see him return back home to visit New York City. And the way New York City is described is very much loud and noisy and and dirty, but also with this lovely, the places he wants to see, the things you can get really great here, but nowhere else in the world, like a good hot dog. He wants to go to Central Park and Yankee Stadium And he makes you feel for that in a way that anybody from New York says, yeah, it would be terrifying to think about a pandemic taking place there. But also later when he goes and the world is quiet, being from here for so long, how scary and unreal that feels to not just have so many people around you, to not have so many noises, the indication that something is wrong. And I don't want to talk too much about real life events because we've done that a lot and we're trying to escape it through a podcast. But there was that feeling uh, when we're going through our own pandemic here and you're driving and the roads are suddenly empty when the roads in New York are never empty. You did kind of relate to those those sections a lot more, I think, and um, the characters for what it's like to be in those places and have those places suddenly change on you. Um, I want to come back just for a minute to Franny before we move on to Harold. I'm sure there's a lot to say about Harold. But when we were talking about the interactions with her father, who I think they do a beautiful job of painting very quickly, a sketch of him, as well as her mother. And I think that King describes it perfectly in this line so you can understand her mother. The father says she stopped growing. She slapped three coats of lacquer and one of quick dry cement on her way of looking at things and called it good. He gives us background on her brother, Franny's brother, um, the son that the mother lost and how she never really recovered from that, uh, how she's not able to have the same relationship with Franny because the son was sort of 
her favorite, even though parents pretend they don't have one. And mm-hmm. Franny was the father's favorite. And so now that she had lost hers, what a detriment that was, you really feel the dynamic of what's happening there pretty quickly. And before any of that can truly be resolved, Franny loses them. So as hard as it is to lose anyone and go through everything she's going through, it seems as though she never really got closure on some of that stuff. I wish maybe that had been looked at a little bit further. Uh, For most of these characters, once the plague is over, they don't really talk a lot about the people that they lost to life before any of the grieving or trauma maybe that they would go through. I know they're immediately confronted with so many other challenges, but it's one psychological aspect that I think would come up an awful lot that we don't hear about in King's work. Maybe one or two lines, you know, Larry talks about uh, his mother, but not really missing anybody or, or what that would be like for them. You mentioned something while we're on Franny on the podcast for the TV show. You mentioned that you you were disappointed that the TV show didn't make her out to be as strong of a you know strong independent person as you got the feel that she was from the book. I, I remember when I read through the book, I kind of thought the opposite. I mean, she was kind of a daddy's girl, and she was doing. Remember, she does a lot of giggling, she and does. that scene with Jesse at the beach. You know, he was trying to like she drops on here. You know, she's talking about oh the ice cream wrapper. Bowl. Oh, by the way, I'm pregnant, and then you know, and he's supposed to like react in some mature and then like you didn't react right blah 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 and she's like keep picking at him and picking at him and I mean I thought she was very like um, almost kind of like her mother in a way you know but the I want line and then and she's like you know pregnancy was so important to her and I don't know I just didn't see her as strong and independent as, as you did when you came away I mean I thought she was kind of girlish a bit I definitely understand everything you're saying especially in the beginning the I think King goes through pains to paint her as a real character, somebody that is young, is immature in many ways, um, doesn't entirely know what she wants yet out of life and is figuring that out through the lens of this pregnancy. What does she want for the future? And thus it's really difficult because before she can learn any of that, the world changes on her and it's a whole new set of how do I be, what do I want? But it does feel to me like she finds that along the way, that despite the immaturity and the quirks that Franny has in her giggles, she is also a strong person. And she's able to just keep taking thing after thing as it comes and dealing with it. And that's why it makes sense to me that she winds up with Stu, these two people who can let their best selves come out in the face of a crisis. I mean, just thinking about being pregnant for the first time at the end of the world and how terrifying that would be, not even knowing if her child or humanity is going to survive and live on past this. I enjoyed some of those parts about the character and I felt, and this is really sticky territory here, but the depiction in the 2020 of her suicide attempt changed a lot of that for me. Let me just put it that way. It changed the arc and it put it more on Harold's character and stuff that was happening to her being for the growth of Harold's character rather than Franny. So I felt we got even less of her until the very end, uh, let's say, of the 2020 than we had previous. Yeah, good point. And I think that's partly a detriment to the fact that both TV series are only nine or so episodes. They're, they're very short. I get what they were trying to do in the 2000, or 2020 series around the flashbacks. It felt kind of like a lost story 
plot device, if you will. But I think the character flaws that we see, not only for Franny, but for everybody in, in the TV series that are not picked up in the books, that you have like Franny and Nadine being, you know, almost stereotypical women characters, if you will, mm-hmm. um, dated stereotype characters, is because they don't have that many episodes. Obviously, in the 90s, TV budgets were totally different. And, you, you know, they're more interested in miniseries versus like shorter series that you can that stretch out over time like we see now. But I think we could have gotten a lot of this character development that you get in the books if we had had more episodes to develop the characters properly. Right. I do think that Franny is a little young, right? Almost cliche in the book. But I think that also gives it some sort of weight that you can kind of see like okay here she started on page one in this location and then by the end of the book she's this whole new character that um learned a lot about herself and how strong she actually is and can get to which i think is a a true testament to king's writing ability so early on in his career he's able to develop characters like this um i think it's a really good thing and unfortunately we're missing out on every tv series that does the stand hopefully when they do it again in say 40 years um they'll do it better yeah and that depiction of female characters which is always difficult that that king has definitely had problems with in some books and done very very well in others uh thinking of gerald's game and i i do think franny is a good representation at least of an early attempt at that of, of really understanding it more now clearly he gets characters like harold a lot more than franny and this 2020 oh boy i think how do you get a little more of people like franny a little less of people like Harold. I loved Harold's portrayal here, and Owen Teague killed it. Okay, Cora Nemec was okay in the 94, but Owen Teague just blows it away, and and you really get Harold. I don't know if we needed quite 150% so much Harold in the 2020. (laughs) It was a Harold show. Uh, But let's let's just introduce him, and I'll let you guys give thoughts, because I think I've talked enough on our show about Harold Um, Just to say that he's pretty much the same here in the books. He's an outcast, an aspiring writer um, who is bullied, made fun of, never really recognized. He is intellect gone awry, and more importantly, he is King describing an incel before we even have the terminology, the existence of incel. And we get a lot of this through Harold's interactions with Franny. I have... A thing here that I pulled out because we didn't mention Franny's journey goes into her actually burying her father. Very poignant scene that goes into a little bit of that PTSD trauma and loss that I explained because she definitely goes through that when she's burying her father. And then Harold comes along a couple of times. We meet him in the books. And one time Franny says, the unreality was trying to creep back in again. And she found herself wondering just how much the human brain could be expected to stand before snapping like an overtaxed rubber band. My parents are dead, but I can take it. Some weird disease seems to have spread across the entire country, maybe the entire world, mowing down the righteous and unrighteous alike. I can take it. I'm digging a hole in the garden my father was weeding only last week. And when it's deep enough, I guess I'm going to put him in it. I think I can take it. But Harold Lauder in Roy Brannigan's Cadillac, feeling me up with his eyes and calling me my child? (laughs) I don't know, Lord. I just don't know. (laughs) I thought that was a great line, feeling me up with his eyes. I thought that was so perfect description, you know. Well, I mean, Harold's a lot to take, right? 16-year-old hormone, I guess, as you could just... (laughs) I was really impressed. I'm going to go out on a limb. The visuals in 1994, obviously compared to what we have now, 
were not as good, but I thought they did almost everything better in 1994 than they did in this version. And as much as I didn't like Molly Ringwald, the scene where she was singing Amazing Grace and stitching up the sheet around her father was really, really intense. It really got me. And I think... Great scene. I think with Stu, they make it readily apparent. He's just built to be kind of like a hero type. He's our protagonist, right? So even when he first encounters Campion and this guy just looks awful, he's the one that runs in and cradles him and tries to comfort him. Um, And you're laying this groundwork right off the bat that this is somebody who's, he's strong. He's gonna, he's got what it takes to make it through something like this. Whereas when you first meet Franny, you're thinking she can't, (laughs) she can't make her way through a lot of things that she's dealing with already. But when you see her, like you said, hear her burying her father, the the strength that that takes to to do something like that and then just move forward right after that and say, what do I have to do to get through this? That that was emotional and it was impressive. But the way they portrayed it in 1994 was was really impressive. It was really sad. It was beautiful. Thank you for bringing that up because I also want to say there there is that writing there, like I was saying about the trauma. There's a minute where you do think she's going to break. And she disconnects from reality. She forgets what she's cooking. She's thinking about uh, before you take care of the moat in thy neighbor's eye, look at the beam in thy own or something like that. She, she just, her mind is skittering away. And while Harold is, as Kirk said, a lot to take, I think him coming into the scene kind of brings her back to reality. And, and she's able to ground herself again because she's got to deal with Harold. So growing up in a small town, you get a lot of what people use as stereotypes these days in TVs and in movie shows. I don't know of anybody that went as bad as Harold did from growing up, but I could see how people back then could react in the same way. If you're always bullied and you're at the outcast and you're someone that's just automatically put down all the time by your peers, quote unquote, when they're all of a sudden gone, you feel like you have this total freedom and you're king of the world. And you can do whatever you want. You can have whoever you want. And that you're right, Christina. Owen Teague did this beautifully, this series, where he just really fully embodied that outcast that's been always kicked down, always been at the bottom of the heap. And now all of a sudden, he has the chance to be at the top and no one's going to stop him. Of course, he's going to take that. Harold is just kind of that character. He's all of a sudden given this opportunity to be everything that he's always hoped and dreamed and wanted to be, but just couldn't because either society or, or his peers or somebody just wouldn't let him. And now he's got the freedom to do so. It's a, it's a great depiction by King and by Owen Teague this year of how somebody in that situation, giving anything that they want, takes everything and doesn't apologize for it. And I love that there are many moments, and Jason struggled with this early on because I think Harold was written in the 2020 as more clearly signs that he would go bad. He was less redeemable than perhaps in earlier versions. In King's novel, for me, it goes on a lot longer wondering, wondering if he can redeem himself, find his way back to the good side, moments of really feeling for him. And Brian, what you're bringing up makes me think of when he first comes over to Franny's house. And he is tooling around in Roy Brannigan's Cadillac. And he is wearing these $150 cowboy boots that he just took out of a store, looking ridiculous. But he knows it, and he says, I, I just took them because there was nobody there, and I don't, they're not really me, but I can have them now, so it's okay, right? And 
you know, there, there's moments of him questioning and... I think you do hope for him in a way in this book that he can find it. And a lot of that you see through later on Larry's view of Harold. Larry following his signs and seeing the, the strengths and the things that Harold is capable of that maybe nobody else really saw. And this is what Harold can't stand. Nobody ever sees these things I have to offer. Even at the end of the world where I'm doing so much, nobody notices, nobody cares. So more than I can't get the girl... I don't even have anything to contribute, yet I do have a lot to contribute. Somebody notice it, right? That's the one piece that I don't know. I think it's really a fault of the time jumps in the 2020. You already know what to expect, and so there's less wondering about that. The time jumps don't do 2020 any services. I mean, they obviously worked for Lost, and I, I keep bringing it up because the first couple episodes felt like kind of a loss that they were doing some some background filler stories, but it was not done as well. But yeah, the time jumps kind of killed a lot of that character development and you're really kind of just supposed to believe it, right? There's some instances of someone going crazy and then, okay, you've got the, the same character six weeks, six months later, and then this is the end result. It's like, but you need that time frame in between to understand how they got from a to Q, you need the, at least some of the other paths along the way. Yeah, what I was going to ask to see if you guys felt a disconnect. I felt the disconnect between the book and the and the twenties version of Harold, because in the book Harold is really repulsive. He's fat. He's got a flat butt. He's got acne all over his face. His pants are always falling down, and the kids are constant. The school kids are constantly giving him shit, you know, all the time that he grew up. But in the 2020, I mean, I thought that Harold is kind of a stud. You know, he's got this long hair that he comes back and he's got a trim body, zero acne. And even later in the show, I think he gets even more and more attractive. I don't know, I'll have to let you fill me in on that, Christina. But. Even even Coronemic in the 94, they're putting fake acne on him. They're doing all this stuff. But with both versions, you can clearly tell it's a good-looking guy who just needs a little bit of a shine-up. And mm-hmm. he's he's going to be a good-looking guy. Yeah. I don't know why, if they were afraid to approach that. I think there were definitely things, a lot of things in the 2020 that they were afraid that in the 94, maybe not, because they went after some more difficult topics. Uh, but in the books, it, no, it's not all about physical appearance, but I think that is a part of it for Harold that physically he does transform when he gets to Boulder. And maybe it's another representation that he could change. Um, So that's a piece of it we're missing. But I think it always does at base come back to Franny's describing the physicality and saying things like, does he know a bar of soap would clear a lot of that up? Uh, But she's also saying it's not even about that, though. It's about Harold and that everything he does feels like it's lightly coated in slime. There was something on the inside that was wrong and you could sense it was wrong. And I do think Owen Teague brought that from the very beginning. This brings up this whole issue, this constant issue that you'll probably know from your work, Christina, the whole nature versus nurture thing. I mean, I could see from the book, this fat, ugly guy who's constantly bullied in school they're stealing his bicycle, all this kind of stuff. You're going to grow up with a lot of resentment, especially like Brian was saying, people don't, or maybe both of you are saying that people don't recognize his talents or what he sees as his talents. So he's going to grow up with a lot of stuff. I kind of was reacting to a lot of people saying, oh, Harold's slimy, he's creepy and all that stuff. But, you know, it depends on if you see where it comes from. And especially when you're a 16-year-old boy, you're just one big giant hormone. 
And, you know, it was like peeping through the fence at somebody. I mean, it wasn't like she was sunbathing. She was working in the garden with her father, you know. And so I don't think that was all that creepy. But, you know, women who reacted to it saw that as just kind of inherent creepiness. And I just saw it as a function of his growing up and also Mm -hmm. being a big giant hormone, you know. But it'd be interesting to see what you guys say. I think some of it I am taking from the book characterization. And and like I said there, that they always describe it as more than just Harold hasn't grown into himself. There is something inherently a little off about him that's scary, that you get the, the conversation in the 2020 with Franny and Harold in the basement. But I do think there is a lot of it that is this unchanneled rage um, that Harold feels for for not having any of the recognition and maybe things could be different for him if somebody would have said, we need Harold on the committee. Uh, Maybe he could have changed. I don't know. It's, It's really hard for me to tell, but he does do things occasionally throughout the story that you're saying, is it more than just that? Is it psychologically more that's going on, you know, him watching Stu and Franny secretly in the woods as they make love for the first time, looking through her journal. King writes a lot about some sexual stuff that I'm not going to get into here. Some of it totally normal for a teenager, maybe some of it not. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, there is a feeling that maybe we can't ever know because we don't see Harold take that turn if it was just normal and he could have turned it around. Yeah, it just seems like if somebody else would have got a hold of Harold on more positive side than Nadine. So Nadine sort of, you know, gave him what he wanted, filled his, his sort of hormone needs and, and also like you've got a place in this world and we recognize your talents and so let's go at it. So if somebody else would have taken her, him under his wing, like, I don't know, maybe Stu or somebody who appreciated those things and he felt recognized by a good person instead of a bad person instead of Nadine, he might have turned out differently. I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. That's why his relationship, I thought in the 2020, one of the best parts with Teddy Wyzak was great because it gave you that look at somebody who just noticed him as a cool guy and wanted to be friends with him and how many times he looked at Teddy and thought, well, maybe I, maybe it is okay. Maybe I can be Hulk. Yeah. All right. Well, I know we've spent a lot of time on these three, but they really are the big three. We do have a bunch of others to discuss though. So let's move it on to the next part. Uh, We step back from Harold and Franny. We go back to Stu, who manages to escape the CDC facility. There's a lot of details in there, but the important part, I think, is there's a really terrifying scene from the novel written very well there that we don't quite get elsewhere about him escaping that CDC facility. Very riveting. And then he goes on his walk. I think this is another show of dealing with PTSD and that Stu needs some time to center himself. The walk gives him the ability to put it behind him, everything that happened there, um, to maybe get himself right again. And then he runs across Glenn, and that's also a major healing factor. The first person that he meets in the new world is a really decent, good guy. Um, Introduced Glenn Bateman, written very lovely here. 2020 is a little bit different. Um, Obviously, in the 94, Ray Walston, I thought, was a genius at this, certainly much older than he's supposed to be in the books. In all versions, a former sociology professor, he's going to bring that into the picture, his takes on society. Glenn is, in fact, going to be King's sort of running commentary on the human condition. What King would like to say about the world and people comes out through Glenn's mouth, Uh, the ideal rationalist. And then on top of it all, he has the only dog we know of that's still existing in the world right now, and that's Kojak. So really great introduction in the books. Uh, Glenn can't paint but he loves to anyway. 
and um, him and Stu just getting to know each other. What did you guys think about all of that and about Glenn? Whenever you read a book, there's sometimes where you're, you set it down and you think about it and it's like, oh, why didn't this person say this? Or why didn't this person do that? You know, what what is going on? It's like, oh, I do this differently. And Glenn, like you're saying, is really, it's kind of that for us. It being King's commentary himself. Glenn gives us that outlet, which I think just really kind of helps bring you into the story. Because Glenn's your own inner voice, your own commentary of what really should be happening but it's not because it's not part of the story so i think it's great and then obviously who who doesn't love a dog (laughs) humans don't deserve dogs and kojak in various points throughout this book and even in in the tv series just exemplifies that it's like we don't we don't deserve dogs at all never enough in the versions on screen though i mean kojak is a hero in the books kojak saves the day multiple times and i'm not over exaggerating he literally saves people's lives in this book and travels cross country on his own to find glenn again gets attacked by a pack of wolves uh, saves stew i mean good dog kojak yeah he saved a few lives in 2020 TV series. He saved Stu, right? Kept him from killing himself, number one, and then kind of went and got Tom and brought him to the scene. So saved Tom and then saved um, Franny in the bottom of the well, you know. And so um, he did some saving. He kind of guarded the little baby while they were trying to get Stu and Franny out of that well and all that stuff. So he did good. He's awesome. He got my vote on that, on that episode or whatever it was. Kojak is awesome. Yeah, but in the it's only like a fraction of what he does in the book. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. But so, but yeah, I, I know my dog would not survive a cross country trip walking. She would probably walk a mile and be like, "What are we doing? Still, you're, you're carrying me the rest of this way." Um, I, I so love yeah, Kojak this. is. Kojak is awesome. The scene where he's bringing Stu all the food, the rabbits and everything, but then he's thinking, I need a fire. And he, he says, you don't know how to fetch, do you? And Kojak <laughs> runs to get a stick. And he's like, oh, get some more sticks. Like He, he actually pulls him up out of the, the pit later um, so that Stu can get up the overside and Tom can find him. Uh, it's just, mm-hmm. He's just awesome. A, a thing that King does here, too, is that he actually does a chapter from Kojak's point of view, which people have differing feelings on. But I like it because it's just one chapter. And he does write it from the point of view of a dog. If he's going to be such a major player, I do like seeing what he's seeing. I don't know. I thought it was good. So back on Glenn, you know, it it seemed, I thought it was interesting that he turns out to be a sociology professor. And I'm sure it wasn't by accident. But if you sort of take the 30,000 foot view of the book, it's kind of a story about two societies getting a chance to sort of remake the world. We have this kind of a evil society going to make it into an evil world and we have a good society that's going to try to make it i mean how often does do people get a chance to remake the whole world right so it's like we have these two groups that are trying to remake the world into their own sort of society around their beliefs and and then it turns out that glenn is a, a sociology you know professor i thought it was a nice fit and probably where some of the narrative that you guys were talking about you know he kind of provides a narrative where that kind of all ties in Yes, and of course, Glenn gives us the famous speech, show me a man or a woman alone, I'll show you a saint, blah, blah, blah. So right. he's, he's outlining from the very beginning the way society functions, period. Also, the potentials for what could happen now that society is so broken and what might happen once we start to band up together. So he's foreshadowing not only the positives, the way we need each other, but the potential downfalls of what we are guilty of, how history repeats itself, and how hard it's going to be to do it different this time. Very, very early on, he's talking about everything everything lying around waiting to be picked up. 
uh, the weapons, the tools of destruction that could come back around again. It's amazing reading it through many times over now, seeing how early that comes in, um, that Glenn's discussing it and how many of those things will later come to be. Yeah, I think that was my point, that he sort of provides a narrative for this 30,000-foot view that I was talking about, you know, the narrative for the bigger story of these two societies, finding out which is going to be the society that survives. Well, we still have a few other people to discuss, and we do shift gears here to another location where we are introduced to Larry Underwood. We find out after years of struggle, Larry has finally had some success with his music and his hit single, Baby Can You Dig Your Man, which we did hear for real on this 2020 version, so glad. But that happens just before the Superflu hits. In the books, what we get to see that we don't in later adaptations is kind of what this is doing to Larry, how he's not able to manage that, this four-day party that he's throwing in California, the quote-unquote leeches that he can't get off his back, and Wayne, the friend there, who actually takes him aside to tell him the facts about what's going on. And he decides to get out, go lay low, go to New York City for a while and see his mother. There we do kind of get this view, both of what's happening in the city, how the pandemic looks there, and his relationship with his mother, which is very interesting. We talked at length in the show episodes, the podcast. It goes further than you're not a nice guy and how she sees him, how she feels it's going to take nothing short of a disaster to bring out what she knows is the good in Larry, but he hasn't managed to find or figure out how to use yet. Um, so we see Larry dealing with all of that, some interactions with his mother before she dies, and then his, his real shock of that, wandering around Central Park, dazed, and meeting Rita Blakemore. Rita is somebody that they couldn't quite figure out how to do in the 94. They decided to take some of her character bits and roll her in with Nadine. In the 2020, they tried to give us Rita. My personal opinion on that was, while I loved it watching it, it was a little confused. And in hindsight, maybe we did just need more time building Nadine. And they should have perhaps cut her here as well. Uh, but what do you guys think about Larry and his relationship with Rita and everything happening there? Maybe I'll start with just Larry himself. He actually, in, in my reading, was one of my turned out to be one of my favorite characters. And I think a lot of it came with the way that we sort of discovered who the true Larry was, with, was through his interaction with his mother. You know, how she treated him and, and um, his relationship with her and how he, you know, he went down to her workplace. And I mean, it's just a lot of fondness between the two. And he, she kind of knew who he was and sort of brought that part out where if it hadn't been for her, I'm not sure we would have got that part of Larry, which was seemed to me to be critical and sort of getting to know and like Larry and sort of understand him. So that was definitely missing from the 2020 show. I mean, I don't think they even spoke about his mother, did they? At least I don't remember. A little. He, we saw her go to kind of help her get her out of the hospital, but never any of the character beats of what's happening there that are so vital. And that's when I think in the book, anywhere we first see him, you know, cry was when he finally, I'm not sure exactly, I don't think he buried his mother, but when she was, um, when he found her dead anyway, I think was when the first time. So we were able to see some of his vulnerabilities, you know, there. So I think that's what made him kind of a likable character to me was like, if it hadn't been for that mother, multiple mother scenes in the book, I don't think I would have came across with that same impression of him. You know, I probably would have thought that he was more the sort of Hollywood singer kind of a guy. And I kind of thought that's the way he came across in the 2020 series is that he didn't quite seem as fully developed to me as he did 
I mean, that's what we're all complaining about. You know, and it makes sense. You have nine hours of TV show versus what, 49 hours of book. And so, you know, something's got to give. Yeah, I really liked him. And I think I liked him as I got to know him through his, uh, his relationship to his mom. Larry might be my favorite, and I was trying to explain this to Jason, how he is the one with the largest arc. If somebody like Stu doesn't really have to encounter much, Larry completely transforms in my mind. He, he's a pretty unlikable dude in the beginning of the story. He doesn't quite know how to deal with any of this. But how just over time, how much he grows, like even thinking to Rita's death in the books and how much he can't deal with that, finding her tent in the body and how he reacts to that. And then just in a daze, sort of stumbling around the countryside after until he finally runs into Nadine. I think King has written him as one of his favorites, him and Nick, who uh, might as well get nothing in the 2020 version, but we'll get there. Um, I think Adam Stork did a pretty good job in the 2020. I actually like the way he showed that, that he's a little abrasive and grating in the beginning, but you, you grow to love him. But None of these quite reaching the level of the book for me. And, of course, the primary scene is the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, I love, I think that's one of the scariest scenes in King's writing. But the part, the yeah. two parts that I think showed the softer side of Larry that finally ends up coming out is, like I said, his relationship with his mother and then his relationship with Joe, right? I mean, then we saw him. And that was kind of like really when he got to the end of his arc, you know, it's, it seemed like Joe and his relationship with Joe just really brought that out. Yeah, this is jumping forward a bit. But what about that scene where he's got to lift the thing up that he's trying to get gas and mm. he knows if he drops it, it's going to take his fingers off. And that's really the shining moment that he asks Joe to help him. And he knows he's putting his trust into him. And after that, this bond is sort of solidified between him and Joe. I love that. And that's also where he develops his appreciation for Harold, right? In that same scene. Mm. And he's like, wait, this guy did this all by himself and he couldn't even pull it off. What I think is interesting between Rita and Larry is that you obviously see Larry go through the struggles of being a musician, making it big, not understanding what it finally means that, oh, you have money, you have all these leeches around you. And he gets to the place where he, he really can get to a, an inflection point, if you will, of do I continue my career, you know, and become that successful person that I've always wanted to be, or do I, you know, stay true to my roots and be who I am and understand that I might not make as much money in kind of in a ghost of Christmas future way, Rita comes in and kind of shows him what it means to be the pampered person and how that life could potentially affect him and um, what it means. And you're having somebody that's like in Rita fully in that lifestyle, but also can't really function day to day if she doesn't have that support system that comes along with being pampered in New York and living on the Upper East Side or wherever. And bottles um, and pills. Exactly. And then you start to realize it's like Larry starts to realize is that that's not me. That's not who I am. Obviously, in the book, his, his mother kind of helps nudge him in that direction as well to make him start to question things once he and Rita start walking across the country. But it's a really interesting character study that somebody's given that opportunity to see how a path in life is going to take them in the future and say, is this really where you want to go? And have that decision 
put in front of you in such a way. Yeah, and I, I love just as an example of that, the the scene that King writes about the shoes. And then when Larry realizes that Rita's been walking all this way in these open-toed expensive sandals, and he starts yelling at her. And that really leads to the argument where they split up and Larry winds up continuing into the tunnel alone. But he's so angry with her and her inadequacy, her not being prepared to deal with any of this stuff, the fact that he might have to take care of her. And that's Larry's main challenge throughout the entire book and series he's always thinking about himself putting himself first and Rita's the first challenge of can I make room for somebody else to be in my life in my heart can I take on the responsibility of having to help someone else and here he can't and and eventually he finds his way not only to that but being a kind of leader but in the moment he's freaking out at her and then he has a beat and he turns to himself and in his head, he says, yeah, but Larry, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you notice her shoes? Why didn't you say something about it? You aren't a nice guy. And it's that constant push-pull that only being inside of his point of view in the books do you really get his struggle with it. And then later, why following Harold's signs are so important because he can't trust himself yet. But having somebody else who's already made that journey before him and saying, I can just follow that like a roadmap. I can do that much. Um, Harold comes to take on almost this mythical importance in his mind and becomes something that really he's not, but he's even asking himself, what would Harold do, right, every time he encounters the challenge? So I, I just love all of that about Larry. You kind of get that in like one or two sentences in the 2020 version where Larry meets Harold at some point. It's like, oh, you're Harold. I've been following you. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get that little reverence that's there, but it's it's – like we've always been saying, it's kind of lacking. You don't have that real development up to that point to lead you into like, no, this really is a very important moment for for Larry's character. Finally meet Harold after how many of her miles walking across the country. So yeah, totally agree. You know, actually, I would forgotten about that in the book, but that kind of reinforces the point that I was making because Larry was really impressed with Harold. He was impressed how he left all those signs. He was impressed that how he could, you know, um, do, I forget what he was doing, but that vat that you were talking about that they were trying to open up or something like that, how he could do that. And so you wonder, like, if somebody had Larry, like Larry had taken Harold under his arm, under his wing instead of Nadine, you know, could Harold have been a different, a different person? And it almost yeah. happened when he went to meet him and first he Very runs into close. Franny yeah. and she starts putting it in his head that, Harold's not the guy you think he is. And he kind of can't even believe it, has to go meet him for himself. What what do you mean? Like, Harold's a genius. It's a really interesting thought of, if anybody, it probably would have been Larry. Yeah, could have been. And before we leave um, Harry and Rita, I have to tell you, there's one point when they first meet. Remember, they're like in Central Park, and um, I forget who's there first, but they kind of run at each other, I guess, in Central Park, and they're talking. At some point, I think Larry says, let's go have lunch, or... Or she says, do you ever invite a girl to lunch? I forget how it happens. But then they walk off in their way to um, lunch. And King is describing, this is just something that just, I'll probably keep it in my mind forever now if I read it. But King was describing how they're walking through. And I think he was describing how Larry's is really in tune to different noises. You know, he's hearing the birds and he's hearing. And at some point he said, because they're walking, he's walking with Rita. He says, he heard the whisper of her pants. And I thought, whoa. I could have like, I mean, what a, what a phrase. I could like live my whole life and never come up with that phrase, but it was so perfect. I mean, you guys, probably you girls more than, than guys. I mean, just that, the notion of whisper of her pants, because that's exactly sort of what pants do, you know, when you're walking in the wind. And 
Well, and he's a musician, so that, that makes sense he would pick up on that. He's also kind of a sensory... He describes things in that way. The smells of the city yeah. and the smell of Rita's sachet perfume, the way it reminds yeah. him of his mother. He does a lot of that. Well, I thought it was great that Larry came up with it, but I mean that Larry, that King came up with it, but you're right. It fit. It fits uh, Larry's character perfectly. Yeah, I didn't even put all those together, but you're right. Well, and also before we move on from Larry, any thoughts about the Lincoln Tunnel? I mean, is this just me? Did you guys, how did you feel about that scene? It was taken out of the 2020 in every story, there's always a iconic moment that no matter what else you remember about the story, you remember that. The Lincoln Tunnel in the book is described so perfectly. And honestly, with, with Larry's thoughts around and ability to talk with about sound and being able to pick up and everything, Larry's the perfect character to go through it. Echoing. It was just so perfectly done in the book. It honestly made me scared of the night for a long time and i think i still kind of jump every time i hear something that i don't know what it is if i'm you know out at night walking around and i hear noise i like what what was that <laughs> you know and and the, the flight or flight response kicks in just a little bit in the 94 version i like how they try that they, they wanted to keep it in and they tried to portray it obviously it's really hard to do and it's pitch black and you hear all these sounds and you're trying to see a character's face and how they're reacting to it so them doing it with the headlamp or the headlights was was great and really did give you that same kind of feeling of the suspense and whatnot. The sewer scene in 2020 kind of got there, but it was not done as well. It, I think, was a disservice to the source material and a disservice to Larry's character and just in general disservice, just a disservice. I was really looking forward to a different way to do uh, the Lincoln Tunnel here in 2020 with all the new budget and the new technology that we have can do those sort of things. It was let down. The idea of the tunnel, and it come, there's a couple of tunnels that come up to play in the book, but do you think that, I'm kind of wondering, because I'm new to this whole horror thing, but so is a tunnel the closest you come to be being buried alive without being buried alive? And yeah. maybe that's how, maybe that's why, I don't know if they're big across all of King's books, but I mean, to me, it kind of felt like that. And maybe why the sewer scene was, as close as they could get on the budget, you know, on the logistic issues that they had, because it kind of gives you that same claustrophobia kind of thing. But the other tunnel that comes into play, if you this is way farther in the book, was is the Eisenhower Tunnel, where the kid um, ends up kind of getting abandoned right at the mouth, I think, of the Eisenhower Tunnel. So he's not quite inside it, but it was just another tunnel reference that I noticed that, uh, um, and ends up dying there, you know, right, right outside of it, I think. Yeah, and it's a good call because later on when uh, Stu and Tom are traveling and there's all this snow, at one point Stu realizes the tunnel's underneath him and all these miles of metal and then bodies underneath that that gives you a very claustrophobic sense just thinking about it. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this is down to King's writing. And Michelle, I want to ask you because you have more of a background in creative writing. I, I don't know exactly what it is that he's doing here. I know part of it when he describes Larry going through the Lincoln Tunnel is that he only has his lighter, right? His cigarette lighter. So mm -hmm. he describes how there's only a little radius of light that he can see by and his mind is just imagining the worst that all these dead bodies in the car could come back to life. He knows that's not going to happen, but what if it does? What if the soldiers are still stationed there ready to gun people down that are trying to cross through? And then the sounds and how the darkness distorts your sense of time, your sense of sound in a place like this. Larry says, 
It was 4.20, but he wasn't sure what to make of that. In the blackness, time seemed to have no objective meaning. Neither did distance, for that matter. How long was the Lincoln Tunnel anyway? A mile? Two? Surely it couldn't be two miles under the Hudson River. Let's say a mile. If a mile was all it was, he should have been to the other end already. It should have taken him 15 minutes, and he'd already been in this stinking hole five minutes longer than that. I'm walking a lot slower, he said, and jumped at the sound of his own voice, the lighter dropping from his hand onto the catwalk. The echo spoke back and changed into a dangerously jocular voice of an approaching lunatic. A lot slower, slower, lower, slower. (laughs) And he just goes on and on about his mind playing tricks with him. I can't even tell quite what he's doing there, but King is instilling this sense that somebody who's driven through the tunnel a ton of times, I can picture that so clearly and how terrifying that would be. Yeah, well, tunnels are kind of scary when there's no pandemic. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, they're scary for traffic reasons, but they're also scary just because you're under all this earth. And I don't know, it just seems kind of like strange things. I think there's a lot of symbolism. I think the whole thing is symbolism. I think it's a passageway, a journey that he has to take. And it's representative. A tunnel is under the surface the way that his internal journey is happening under the surface of himself. Mm. And he has to make this choice, make this harrowing expedition through the unknown to come start at one place to come out the other end to get to his destination, which is going to be a new place, hopefully a better place. And uh, it's just the fear and the danger and just going through all of that to come out on the other end. Yeah, that's a great point, you know, because if you think about the kid never makes it through the tunnel, he just gets to the mouth and and dies there, where Larry does get through to the other side. And trash never even enters it, actually. What's that? Trash never even enters it, actually. He goes around. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's a good point. I never thought about that. And Michelle, he does describe making it to the other side and seeing the light and how Rita's going to feel once they finally get through of it, how much better she's going to feel. There's so much I love about Larry. I think Larry has more layers than maybe any other character. There's so much depth to him. And I like there's this dichotomy I see between him and Harold. They're both kind of like big question marks in the beginning. They can both be influenced. You can see them both easily going one way or the other. It brings up the question again, what is innately in us? What's in our soul? And it can only be revealed. This apocalyptic event happens. And what is that going to bring out in them? Thank you. You brought me right to that quote that I was looking for Mm -hmm. that I loved where it says, no one can tell what goes on in between the person you were and the person you become. No one can chart that blue and lonely section of hell. There are no maps of the change. You just come out the other side or you don't. And it is talking about characters like Larry specifically here, but characters like Harold and almost the, the passageway of the tunnel representing that, the, the journey. So I love that you just put those two together in my yeah. mind because I never thought about it. King is just a genius and he writes intricate stories. And I don't even think sometimes when we're reading them, when we're watching them, we're aware of how much is happening. To let the listeners know, we are introduced to Nick briefly in this section, but I want to talk about Nick and Tom together and really dig into both of them. So we're going to wait for book two for that because we don't get quite as many character introductions, which means the last two people that we really meet in book one are Lloyd Henry and the trash can man. So let's start out with Lloyd. We get this whole background on him, riding with Polk, 
how they're becoming interstate fugitives. They rob a quickie mart. There's a shootout that leads to Polk's death, and Lloyd is arrested and taken to a Phoenix maximum security prison. Of course, there's quite a lot that goes on in between there that starts building up about Lloyd's character, how he really is a follower in the beginning. He says multiple times he would have never gotten into anything but small shit if it wasn't for Polk. And yet, after this whole event, when he comes to the prison, he is regarded as a bit of a superstar. And he does begin to take on that persona a little bit until he encounters his lawyer. Great set of interactions where the lawyer really brings him back down to earth on what he's dealing with here. And of course, none of that really matters because then the superflu hits. Lloyd is left in this terrifying position that's written so beautifully in the books of just being stuck in the jail cell. And King does a lot of talking about him and reflecting on things, what an experience this is for him, storing food and the food running out, eventually having to kill and eat a rat, and finally being reduced to eating some of his cellmate, Trask, until he's finally found by Randall Flagg. So what did you guys think of Lloyd, that whole journey, what we learn about him? I think Lloyd is the opposite side of the coin of Larry in that... They kind of need someone to follow or a leader to put them in some sort of direction and down a path and say, this is the way you, this is the way you go. But Lloyd is obviously the darker side of Larry uh, with having flag be the leader and say, this is where you need to go. So I think it's interesting seeing both compared in that way. You know, Larry is introduced to mother Abigail and the light side. And does some character development of saying that, hey, I don't necessarily, I need a leader, but I, you know, I can still redeem myself. Whereas Lloyd goes down the darker path and has to do more of a struggle and more of a dramatic thing that we see later on in, in, in book three of really just kind of like saying, oh, this is my path and I don't need that leader anymore. So it's, it's an interesting take as, as King works so well with his craft of saying, here's the same type of person just the opposite and how does that work through the story how does that character development happen to get them to both the point of the redemption arc and it begs the question once again like this whole story of nature versus nurture what if larry had encountered black and where would that have gone versus if lloyd had been in contact with mother abigail because they are so seemingly easily influenced, where someone like Stu wouldn't be. He's on his path. He knows who he is, what he is. These two characters seem like they could have gone either way. And I think that brings up an interesting point, too, about if we sort of look at the book, I mean, we wouldn't be the first ones to describe this as a story about sort of good versus evil, And if you overlay that on sort of this nurture versus nature, you know, are people born good or people born bad or do they become bad, you know, based on their nurture or is it some combination of both? I mean, in the book, you probably get the sense that somebody like Stu is just born good or somebody like Nick was just born good or somebody like Abigail born good, you know, and then on the other side, you've got the other folks like Flag. But there's some characters and I put Harold into this category, too that they could have gone either way, just what you were saying, Michelle, that depending on their, their environment, you know, and I think that I definitely think Larry, that Lloyd is probably one of those, if they would have had their right characteristics is what they would call their right characteristics, um, reinforced and emphasized when they were younger, you know, could they have gone a different route? 
I think so few people fall into that black and white, the human nature, the human race. There's so much gray. There's so many of us, I think the general population, that have components of both. I think the stews of the world are rare. It makes me wonder who made the selection? How did Mother Abigail and how did Flag go about calling on the people that they called on? Yeah, yeah you bring up that good point. What I was going to say is that we we see more clearly in the 2020 version that Flag visited several people before he went to Lloyd. So he went and talked to Nick. He really wanted Nick. And of course, Nick turned him down. We know from the books that Nick is inherently good. As much as he offers him, he was never going to fall for that. Uh, but that Larry, too, had dreams of him. And I brought that up to Jason. Yeah, sure, some people had dreams of both, like Larry and Harold. But it doesn't seem that Flag ever really came to Larry and Harold with the same type of proposition. And they really seem like characters that could have been swayed. Harold really gets it more through Nadine. And Larry gets dreams, but never really the offer offer. They seem more influenceable, more gray. And I like your idea that Lloyd never seemingly gets visited by Mother Abigail and what could have happened with him. Because as much as he is not such a great character, there is a lot of journey for him between what he goes through in the cell, the way he describes himself changing in Vegas. He's fully committed to Flag. And in fact, talks several times about how Flag's made him better, smarter, stronger, um, he just chose to back the wrong man. Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to to Polk, right? Where he was hanging out with Polk, and Polk did wasn't shy about blasting the head off of whoever he was around. And Lloyd was the guy that was like, "Whoa, you didn't just blast that guy's head off, did you?" And but he kind of was pulled in that direction. I think first by Polk, and then second by Flag. You know, another person that you guys may disagree with me on this, but I mean, I see that I kind of see Flag being sort of inherently evil. I see um, the kid. This guy just seemed like he just seemed pretty inherently evil. But you know what? I'm not sure about trash can. I'm not sure that if he had a different growing up, bringing it coming up, that he might have been different either. I don't know that we know enough about his upbringing. Brian's shaking his head. So you think he was evil to the core, huh? Well, I think he was just trash can. Was just this guy that likes to see the world burn. There's there's no real other way to describe it. It's just a guy that likes these tendencies and you know that's very stereotypical but and archetypal but that's sometimes the way the people are that you you really don't have any change in character it's just that's that's who they are and they don't necessarily want to be different because they enjoy who they are you know if coming from getting the nickname of starting the fires in the trash cans right and just continually seeing that and then seeing later in the 2020 series of going again the warhead it's like that's just like the ultimate way of watching the world burn. And that's just that's just who he is. There's there's nothing really else that's there. I yeah, see, you I can see. have a good point because it could be that so we never saw Trashcan really struggle with it like we did Harold and other people that they say struggle, I want to be good, I want to be bad, whatever. Um, but we didn't really see Trashcan struggle that much, and maybe we didn't. I mean, he was kind of abused as a kid, right? I mean, physically abused, mentally abused, and all that. So you never know. I mean, I might be too forgiving of people that had a rough childhood, but, you know, he did take some abuse when he was young. I wanted to bring that up because I, in all of these, never see trash as inherently good or bad. And I, I love that in the 2020, we end that off with the real ambiguity of was he actually serving mother? Was he an agent of chaos? Which way did trash go? Because I see him purely as somebody who is extremely 
psychologically disturbed. I mean, from the very beginning, he's clearly schizophrenic. Um, he's then sent to an institution where they give him a lot of shock treatments that obviously messes with him as per his mother when he comes back home. He grows up in this horrible environment. He, he's got a lot of uh, bullying and triggers from all the people around. And basically, he never has the opportunity to escape. He never gets real help in any fashion. It's just from one thing to the next thing, worse and worse. And then he's also got this pyromania that he's dealing with. And after he comes back from Terre Haute, the facility, there actually are a couple of lines where he says he's doing well for a while and he gets a job and he wonders if he can stop lighting fires, essentially. There is the hint that maybe if he'd gotten proper treatment, that could have been done something with and then something else triggers him and he goes right back to it and lights basically the biggest fire he's lit yet and then it's off to the races because it's just worse until the point that the entire world is empty and he has as much fire to play with as he wants and so of course it gets worse but then we see when he gets to Vegas another brief opportunity because he's meeting people he's belonging uh, they're not making fun of him, surprise. They actually like him, and he can't even believe it. He wonders about that, too, and there's a moment later where he says this was his last opportunity to really be Donald Merwin Elbert. Uh, but could he ever actually be Donald Merwin Elbert, or would he always be the trash can man? And then, of course, the intense trauma with the kid and mm -hmm. what that did to him. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever a clear good or bad, or if it's just so psychologically disturbed that you wonder how much choice he even had in it. It's so interesting based on these characters' lived experience up until then, how this event was viewed by these characters. It was either the, the end of the world and the most terrible thing that could possibly happen, or it was like a gift just perfectly wrapped and put at their feet to do the things and be the things that they could have never previously. Well, they also happened to be the ones that lived through it, too. These guys had the ability to live through it and... and it probably would be a transforming experience. Yeah. You know, we might be living our own mini version of that right now. Yeah, well, and a big point of all of that winds up being how much, again, of it is free will, what comes next versus what's being guided by this ultimate good versus evil and how they choose to worship it because I also see trash as the ultimate worshiper of flag. You know, every, everything is my life for you. And um, he, he really looks at him as a god when nobody else in the story actually does. Lloyd has this intense debt that he owes to him for Flag saving his life and what he helps him with, what he does for him. So it, he's upraised him a bit too. There is a bit of worship going on there, but not quite so serious as with Trash. And we see that on the good side as well. I know we haven't spoken of Mother Abigail or Flag too intensely, believe it or not, they don't fully really get introduced to book two. So we'll talk more about them there. We get ideas towards the end of book one of people getting dreams. Um, but they're not quite fleshed out yet. And again, another thing that surprised me back in this read-through, because in the earlier adaptations, you're obviously getting introduced to the concept quite early on um, of this ultimate good versus evil and where people are falling. But I like the fact that in the books, it's unfolding within the characters a little bit slower. Um, what side are they going to fall on before you get that influence, the pull that you're made aware of, of both Flag and Abigail? Yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to dig out that email I sent you when you got me first reading the book, Christina, because I remember I got through, I don't think I got all the way through book one. Maybe I got to this point and somewhere in the email, I should dig it out. But I remember saying, okay, here's who I like. I mean, here's who I think are going to end up on the good side. And here's the ones who I don't like, you know, so 
we had flag, we had the kid on the bad side and I forget, I should dig it out and see how my my intuition was after book one. You definitely had Harold in the middle, which I loved. Did I? I always put him there. Um, I always put Nadine there early on, even though she's so swayed by influence. We'll talk about her in book two as well, because yeah. she doesn't quite get into her introduction here yet. Lloyd, I, I mean, I, I love how Miguel Ferrer portrayed Lloyd. I, I still think there was more to him than that in the 94, but... Uh, the 2020, I had a lot of problems with that being way over the top with Ezra Miller, as much as I like it. It's kind of weird at the end. Actor. It's just, it's so much. Yeah, not to get into it, but I actually kind of liked Ezra Miller's take on the trash can. I mean, you kind of, yeah, sure, it was over the top, but it's kind of almost a comic relief mm. that you kind of needed. The the opposite version of Tom, the I dark side version of the comedic relief. I forgive relief. you. I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about more next uh, next cast, but I mean... There, I think talking through this, there, I, I realized that there's a lot of different pairings that you get of people. You know, you've got, as we were saying earlier, uh, Lloyd and Larry are, are opposites. You also have Franny and Harold being opposites. They're from the same town with a different takes on it. But yeah, I think I think Trash Can is, is kind of the opposite of, of Tom, which we'll get into next time. Mm. Spoiler alert. Yeah, there's going to be some difficult conversations, spoiler alert, because next time we're going to get into characters with disabilities or characters with magical significance and all the points that people pick on for King's writing that maybe in hindsight we realize how difficult that struggle was because the 2020 chose to like veer sharp left and not get into a lot of it at all, which I think just made it worse. That is kind of all the main characters here, but I I did want to say we mentioned it briefly earlier There's parts in book one that are dispersed with kind of the elsewhere. And uh, one of the brilliant chapters that I love is what I call the no great loss, uh, the emergency room blues, um, how they talk about after the super flu epidemic, there was a second epidemic. It says the epidemic was most common in technological societies such as the United States, where it took about 16% of super flu survivors. It had no name because the symptoms differed wildly from case to case. A sociologist like Glenn might have called it natural death or the old emergency room blues. In a strictly Darwinian sense, it was the final cut, the unkindest cut of all. People having heart attacks, tripping and falling into a well, getting bitten by a snake, uh, accidentally taking a drug overdose, just dying off of these other things because they are alone and there's no one else around. And in some cases, ones that King considers, oh, well, no great loss. But others really sad, you know, like the little kid who does wander into the well and just trips in and and dies. Uh, But I thought beautifully written where he just so snappy from one little story to the next. It was a great show of his writing for me. Now, is there a couple of instances of that in the book, Christina? Because there's definitely one. Remember the story of Ray Flowers, the disc jockey who locks himself? So there was like maybe six, I'm going to say five to seven in that range, little vignettes all in a row, sort of in chapter, I want to say 27, 28, 20, somewhere in there. But yeah. Then it, well, go ahead. I was going to ask you, though, is the story about No Great Loss, is that in a different set or is it that same set of vignettes? It's a different set. So earlier on, thank you okay. for bringing that up, they do have one that's more focused around the media, and that's where Ray Flowers is about mm-hmm. the government when they're still trying to control the flow of information coming in. They come onto a college campus and shut down a protest and wind up killing everyone there. 
They come into Ray Flowers and shut down the radio radio station. That's the first set of vignettes. And also really, really cool to see that look. Well, it's interesting about the one you mentioned about the college campus. So if you remember the college campus they came into was Kent State. And you guys were probably too young to know about Kent State. But, you know, what was it, the 72 timeframe, I want to say, which was probably about when King was writing this book or when they... Um, the cops did, or the National Guard, or whoever it was, came in and did mow down. I mean, it was only four. Four but students, yeah. Was that a protest first. over the Vietnam War? Yeah. yeah. So I thought it found its way into King's book kind of interestingly. So before we, we talk a few more about the flu, any other thoughts about book one, about the characters or the journey so far? I think for book one, it's a great act one of the story. You get introduced to a lot of the main characters, you get their motivations, you get the type of people that they are for when the story starts so that when you get to act three, you can see their character progression. You can kind of understand why they're making the decisions they're making. It really kind of brought me into the story and really made me care about the characters themselves to keep turning the pages. If anybody's interested in writing a book or trying to study how to, how to craft a novel, um, and, and figure out Act 1. It's it's a great textbook version of doing so. Yeah, I totally agree with Brian that by the end of book one, I was like, just pulled into it. And, you know, I just thought I liked all these characters and even the ones that I didn't like, you know, I just wanted to see what happened to them, you know. So let's just say I was brought drawn into all the characters, some good, some bad. You know, there's other epics that did that to me, East of Eden, I think I had the same impression. And I don't re- recall quite... Game of Thrones, if they did it so masterfully is, but that's another huge epic. I'm not sure that I came away drawn into all the characters the same way. And maybe because a lot of the characters unfold later in in further books, but definitely East of Eden was like that for me. And also another one I think was um, Shogun, which is another of those multi-generation, you know, epic books. And I think Chris, you've said that the book one is your favorite too, right? Oh, yeah. So The Stand would rank top five, questionably number one book uh, of anything for me. Forget about Stephen King. Uh, It was my first Stephen King book that I ever read, which was a little disappointing later when I found out it's actually the one I like best from him. You shouldn't start with that because it's (laughs) it's hard to top it. Uh, But a big part of that was the draw of the pandemic, which I'm um, a sucker for stories like that. And you know, the apocalyptic end of the world type stuff. And so that drew me in and kept my interest as King is building these characters and doing all of these other wonderful things that keep me now interested through maybe what people consider a little bit of that book two lag of rebuilding society and meeting minutes. And I'm, I'm so hooked at that point that I actually didn't find that stuff boring. I, I can't wait to talk about it next time, but it is a little less interesting than book one. Book one packs a lot of action. So I remember this being my favorite, and then when we finally get to the end end and have the Tom Stew journey that everyone always kind of forgets about, uh, it bookends it nicely. They're my two favorite parts. Michelle, I have to ask before we get to our ratings and our MBS, uh, just a a couple (laughs) questions about the super flu, because of course this intrigues the heck out of me. The book tells us a bit, but is always very closed-lipped about explanations on what this actually is. What they do tell us is it is a constantly shifting antigen virus. It has 99.4% communicability and fatality. Uh, It starts out looking like the common cold, causing tiredness, congestion, sneezing, 
but as it progresses, gets worse very quickly. Fever, pain, swelling, this tube neck thing. It has all different names. A-prime, choking sickness, tube neck, captain trips. We hear all of them in book one. But primarily the super flu. And because they say it very much is like the super flu in that their description is every time your body came to a defensive posture, it would shift again. That's why it was like the flu and that the flu kept coming back every year despite vaccinations. Your body would produce its own antibodies, but then it would change again. In that way, it was more similar to the AIDS virus than the regular flu. It went on shifting from form to form until the body was worn out. But with the immunes, they didn't get sick and then throw the sickness off. They never got sick at all. Is that true to real medicine? Is that how this would work? Is it possible to never get it at all? Is that what immunity is? Or is it the body just fights it off so quickly that you don't get symptoms? I'm not sure. I would have to do research on that. From what we see with a lot of viruses, the people get them. And for some reason, their immune system is able to fight it off and is not overcome by it. And there have been so many studies since COVID about different genetic factors that could play a role in it. They did a study um, of people in Italy when COVID first started, because that was a country that got hit really hard, really quickly. And they were finding correlations between um, men with male pattern baldness getting sicker and and getting COVID more easily. And they were trying to figure out um, what about our hormones could possibly um, have an influence over our immune system. Our bodies are such incredible machines and there's so many viruses that are in us all of the time. Um, some viruses actually help with certain functions and then there's these other ones that completely incapacitate us. The question I had about the book was where this virus actually was supposed to originate. I don't know if they say, was it man-made? Was it something that was naturally occurring that they were trying to test on? Or was it actually supposed to be an act of God from the very beginning to, to bring the world to a place where good and evil were finally going to face off because there was so much, we've come so far, 7 billion people, maybe 6 billion people when the book was first written. So with a communicability of that level, with it being um, so transmissible, so lethal, the virulence of this virus in the book is just completely unprecedented. Even when you look back in history, the Spanish flu, um, the plagues that you've looked at in the past, the bubonic plague and the nothing really has come that close to wiping out the human race the way this has. So it makes me wonder from King's point of view, if it was just supposed to be a random, unforeseeable, unfortunate event, or if there was something much greater on a metaphysical level that there was a reason for it to be leaked out. As far as the mutations, we see that happen all the time. We see it happening now. Some of these viruses, it gets really hairy and scientific, but they're RNA viruses. They are just changing constantly. Like you said, every time our immune system kind of gets a handle on what it is and launches our defenses against it, it changes again. So none of our memory cells are any good because now it's, it's different. And um, it's usually our own immune systems that end up wreaking the havoc because our immune system causes the fever, causes the inflammation, that is what ultimately kills us. So as far as why these characters are immune, I don't think there is a scientific answer. I think in the book, it's supposed to be more of a natural selection and intentional choosing mm. of these people to be spared. Those are completely random. 
those are all really good thoughts. They do say in the books, and, and they've uh, changed it up a little in the 2020, uh, but they do say that the superflu itself was accidental, quote-unquote. It's man-made uh, bioengineering. They've developed a biological weapon, the government, us, under the code name of Project Blue, and we were trying to make it as terrible as possible. Why we would do such a thing is unknown. It's beyond me. Uh, but it did accidentally escape. Um, now, the question of if there's a hand of evil in this, in the 2020, they make Flag a much more active agent because when Campion, the man who lets it out of the facility where they're testing it in California, decides to flee and save his own life. In the earlier versions, that just seems like human error, like people being dumb, and it causes this horrible chain of events. But in the 2020 version, they have Flag there, holding the door open so that Campion can get out of the facility and start spreading it. And this is sort of Flag in every version, waiting and watching for the right time where he can step in, where humans are being dumb enough and create a window of opportunity that he can get in on the chaos and then start to use that to his advantage. As far as the immunes are concerned, they never say anything directly about them being any kind of chosen, uh, although you do get the feeling that at least some of them, and maybe this is God coming in on the other side and saying, okay, well, I'm going to try to have my say in these events because these people over here might be useful and chooses them for a plan. Um, but the, the flu itself does seem more just like dumb people being dumb people. <laughs> but it, it makes you wonder, it's such an intentional act of evil by people to create something like this. It doesn't even make sense to me if it's that easily transmissible. Even say as a country, if America wanted to bring this and use it in war on another country, that there's no way it can be contained. Uh, it seems like something that people would just do out of sheer evil. And we've intentionally unleashed it, and now this is this is the fallout. Yeah, and they, they kind of talk about that as they go through, too, with the idea of these, these things lying around waiting to be picked up and how that starts with a society. That's their fear later yeah. on when they're rebuilding. First, the police will arm themselves, and then people will get weapons so that they can fight back against the police. And then you'll develop small societies, and society A and B will each get their weapons just in case the other one happens to attack, that they'll be able to retaliate. And before you know it, that's not big enough and they're looking for nuclear weapons and then somebody's cooking up a Project Blue because you have the technology and it's there and you have the ability. Um, and that sort of the spiral always gets away from itself. And that is a point to talk about later that I don't know if I love from King's novel that the, the bad impulses are always there and they're always so hard to fight down and it's always going to be in man's nature to turn to that. It's only a matter of time. You know, that's the idea of the circle closes. I think he, he pulls the flu into it, but not a lot. There's still a, a real lot left open to question. I think there's a lot to that. And if you, want, you might want to explore it in the future. I mean, the whole idea of man's inclination to destroy himself. I mean, we see that with nuclear weapons. We've seen that everywhere. And just about every apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic movie or story is kind of based on that, right? And I mean, we're doing it right now with climate change, I guess, if that doesn't get too political. But And I think that's an ongoing thing. You know, we've seen it kind of from the beginning, back in the days of, this is again, before your guys, but back in the days when um, all the insecticides, well, even like tobacco, I mean, it's just like, we're constantly trying to kill ourselves and the government has to come along and have all these rules and laws and stuff 
to keep us from doing that. But yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I haven't read any more King, so I don't know if this is an ongoing thing for him. But if it is, it wouldn't be surprising because, I mean, it seems like we're intent on doing that. It seems like there's a lot of stories in, in that intent. It's just representative for humans, for that many humans, the government and the scientists to engage. And it's an act of evil to create a biological weapon this way. Um, and it seems like the forces of evil were winning. And so now it takes this divine intervention from the good to combat where we had come as a society. For as many problems as it has, I like the movie Outbreak because it explores that idea a little bit behind the scenes of all these things that we're manufacturing and how dumb it is and how much it gets away from us in certain circumstances. We think we have vaccines or things uh, created against it and we don't fully understand the way nature is going to take hold of this stuff once it's out there in the world and we won't be able to stop it. And it it informs me a little more, I guess, when I go into stories like this of the why and the how. But yeah, I think the 99.4, the over the topness is just King needing to take out so much of the population so he could set the stage for this. It's a narrative necessity. Let's put it that way. Although, is it that outside of the realm of what we can actually do in this day and age? Could we create something that lethal if we wanted to? I think we could. I don't know. I was going to ask that because you do look back at things like the 1918 flu that really existed that killed 50 million people worldwide. That's a lot for a naturally occurring virus. If that was taken and genetically modified, could it get to that level or close to that level, let's say? Yeah. Okay, so I know that it is difficult to do uh, a rating book by book, but as this is CKC and we have our segments, we are going to do a rating for book one, Captain Trips, on a scale of one to ten dreams. That's what we've been using for the stand. One being the worst, ten being the best. What do you give this? And then we'll go into who took the most valuable stand this time around. Okay, I'll go. Somebody has to go, right? (laughs) Set the baseline for all this. Well, I think I've already laid down that I was really impressed with this book and that book one was the favorite of one of my books. But so I got to start somewhere. So I'm, I'm sure all that was a disclaimer because I'm sure I'm going to inflict great inflation. Is that what it's called on all of this? <laughs> so, I mean, I would give it like of all the things that I've read, the, the book that really ranks up there as a whole. And that, I mean, the, the entire book and then book one, like I said, it's I, I think it was just he did such a you know, great crafting job of just developing the characters and everything. So just to put a stake in the ground, I would say, I don't know, 9.5 somewhere. It's like high up there for me. Don't worry. I'm going to rank super high as well. That's why I'm not going first. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Brian, where are you at? So it's high for me as well. Like I said earlier in the cast, it's a, it's a really great and textbook act one for anybody that's wanting to, to write a book. I, I struggle to find or think of another really great act one in other books or another Stephen King book. So I think for me, I'm going to go 8.9. Um, not necessarily because it's you know not deserving of a, of a nine rating, but wanting to leave a little room for myself for later. I don't want to copy, but I think I'm going to with Kirk. I, I would give it a 9.5. I've never read anything to date as good. The only reason it's not perfect is because... There's always things being written, but he just found a way to put down on paper what was happening in an entire country throughout a lethal epidemic. So he gave you so much to picture, so much concrete, but then the book ends, you have so many questions. So for things that should have been so concrete, nothing really 
is at all. Um, and it just, it's something you can't stop thinking about. We could talk for another four hours about all of uh, the questions and the possibilities and what was King thinking and was this written on purpose or did the book take on a life of its own? And there's just endless possibilities. It, it was really as close to perfect as it gets for me for a story. It was like an, it's like an odyssey. I love that you bring that up because there is a whole lot. And, uh, you know, for you listeners, uh, um, sorry, we're, we're doing our best to get it all in here. I'm sure there's plenty we did not cover, but we also are saving much discussion for book two and book three. It is no surprise, though I've already said this is one of my favorite books of all time, and book one is for sure my favorite of the three. Uh, I was thinking 9.5, but now that I've heard you guys, i got to go a, a tick higher, and I'm going to give it a 9.6. Uh, dreams. <laughs> I just, I got to go better, right? Being one of my all-time favorites. I know oh personally, I'll probably go down a little for the next two. Not a lot, because I still love them. Um, but the opener is is always the strongest for me. And I, I really love the way that it's done here. So you have to leave some room there with your nine points. You have to leave room for Shakespeare, Jim yeah. Charles Dickens. I mean, come on, you can't. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't forget those guys. I'll, I'll put it out there. Roots is also like if you want to just look at number one best book of all time. Um, you know, gonna beat this one out probably. Which one is? Which one? Tell me, because last time you turned me on to this book, it was a good one. Oh, Roots by Alex Haley. Oh, oh okay. It was uh, one of my first reads. One of my favorites still. It's so funny that you like that because that's so atypical for the type of story that you typically like, Christina. Mm -hmm. There's almost nothing of that. That one is so nonfiction, if you will. Also um, an epic tale, though, spanning a lot of time, a lot of different characters. Um, very, very intense. But I think just how beautifully written, it, it's unlike anything else. All right, well, let's go on to our last section. And I know this is hard. This is MBS. So who took the most valuable stand in book one? Now, this isn't necessarily a good character, your favorite character. It could be one that you just found most impactful, who moved the story forward or, you know, made the biggest stand. Well, I think it's, I get to go first again, right? I'm always elected. Sure. So actually, I'm going to go with Larry on this one. I'm not sure. Some of it might be that, just because I like the character, but um, he's sort of developing an arc already. I mean, just like if you go back to, you know, when he was younger and grew up in New York to this experience out out in the, out in the in Hollywood or wherever the West Coast, and then back to his mom, and then you know the, through what we've seen of him so far. So I'm going to put Larry out there for mine. Love it. We we talked a lot about a lot of great characters, but I think for me. The one that I really identified with, he could be my favorite character um, in this part, but it's Stu Redman. It's kind of really just the guy that kept me grounded with all the other craziness that was going on. Um, and especially looking back now at living through a pandemic and, and talking about all those sort of things, it's, it's, he's really kind of the guy of like, that's who I'd try to want to be. The stable person that says, here's what you're supposed to do. Don't go too far off the beaten path of who you are and do all this creative stuff because you can all of a sudden you just can do stuff like Harold does. Um, he's the rock for the, for the first book. I don't know if I can do this for book one. He could probably, can I do flag? I think he shows up, right? We didn't, we chose to not talk about Abigail or flag cause they're bigger in book two, but I think they both show up. 
You, there's no rules go? here. You could do whatever you want. <laughs> All right. I, I want to take him just because he's so opposite of Stu. But it's all these characters are all human characters and they're kind of uh, constrained by time and space and their situation. Um, And Flag is just, he's like this entity that's kind of hanging over everything, but pulling strings and manipulating all of the characters underneath him, like the director as he lays out the paths that everyone's going to take and where the story is actually going more of a force than a character. That's why I don't know, but I would definitely do play. Interesting. You know, one thing interesting about that too, is that um, Michelle, he's the only character, at least that I can recall from the book that doesn't have an H. Like we know um, Abigail is 108 and we know Stu's 33 or whatever. And Harold's 16, but he always describes flag as being ageless. Like he doesn't mention it too many times, but I think there's three or four times. So that makes him more the character that you're describing, you know, is more of an ethereal kind of ageless being than actual person, you know, that eats and whatever human beings do. Yeah, we'll talk about this next time, but he really is the only one who truly is kind of uh, greater than a force because Mother Abigail is a human. Um, she has been selected by God, if you want to call it that, we'll get into that. Um, as a prophet to, to speak for this force and kind of allowed to live longer because there is a purpose for her. Uh, but she doesn't have um, too many supernatural powers. Flag is, though, described as not the devil, uh, but some dark force that has been reincarnated many, many times. Um, it says that he's out of time, that he doesn't know himself, that he is sort of eternal, uh, he's described as appearing to be maybe in his 30s, and it seems like perhaps that's because how he wants to appear. But he is he is a very interesting character. I'd be excited to talk more about him. And yeah, how much is he influencing everything behind the scenes is a cool thought. The way you just described him is he's kind of like, he's the Forrest Gump of evil. You know, he's kind of the, if you remember Forrest Gump, you know, he's just kind of everywhere and he kind of pops up in all these places. And so when they describe him in the book, he likes pops up at this evil thing that happened. He popped up at that evil thing. And he is kind of ageless. I mean, he, he gives examples in the book of, you know, being in places that were a long time ago. And one thing that, to pick up on what you were saying, um, Christina, is that um, Mother Abigail always has to check in with her boss, right? And Flag never checks in with anybody. He's like, okay, this is the way it is. So if you think about it that way, there is a big difference in those two characters. You know, she's always got to like, get the word from somebody else. Yeah. Well, for my MVS, this is tricky because I think every time I read it, the book, and it's many, many times, it changes for me which character I'm most invested in and I'm reading more into. And it's the later reads are different from the earlier reads. Uh, for a long time, I definitely would have said Stu. I'm very close to saying Harold because I find him quite intriguing, but I think that Harold actually gets mm-hmm. more interesting in book two. Um, than here but every single time I do love Larry and I'm sorry I have to to copy that because he he could be my favorite character in the whole book and I like his complete arc the most but you're seeing a lot of him in book one that I find fascinating so it's going to go to Larry Larry wins he's got two votes (laughs) he has two votes Larry deserves Uh, it and he almost got mine too the the thing is when you say it like that who, who took a stand right everybody else to me seems so flustered and scared and, and directionless and like nobody because they were human beings, I guess, because flag is a little bit different than that. Um, nobody really 
was able to take a stand just yet. Yeah, and, and Larry, he doesn't even quite hear. It's the very beginning of it. We end off book one with, it's, it's um, unfortunately we lose Rita, and he is making this walk of sort of cleansing, you know, lost mm -hmm. in a fog for a while. And at the very end of book one, he senses he's being watched and followed. And we're going to find out later that's by Nadine. Uh, but we leave him sort of midway through it. This is an amazing conversation, and I'm sorry we went so long, but I've been thrilled to talk about this book. It's been so wonderful having you all on. I hope that you can all join me again for book two. Uh, we're definitely going to do a book two and book three for whoever on the panel can come. Um, any last thoughts for you guys on book one of The Stand? I think I'd echo you, Christina. It's kind of fun to talk to, to like-minded people and they have read the book and then enjoyed the book so well as much as I have. I'll definitely be back if you're having it. Happy to be back. Uh, but no, th this was great. Like Michelle said earlier, we could probably talk for four more hours about just, just book one of itself. Even though I gave it an 8.9, I can't, I can't talk highly enough about how good of an act one this book is. And I think even King does that himself when he talks in his on writing book of how he writes his, his books and, and goes through his thought process. So um, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Christina. We'll have to see where it goes next time. We'll probably go on for what this has been a couple hours, I guess, more than that. I know. I'll try to make the next one a little bit shorter. I knew book one, we have to do introduction. Most of our main characters, I I'm assuming they will get a little tiny bit shorter as we move along. But this is our first book review that we've ever done, which is fascinating. Um, it's the first one in a while where we have a panel of people. So I'm, I don't really care. I, I feel bad for Jason who has to edit all of this later, but I know <laughs> I could keep you guys on all night. I'm going to stop us here because we have plenty more book to go in the future, but it has been excellent discussing this with you. I hope to see you all back when we do the stand book two on the border. And until then you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC Podcast. This round is on me.